You know, we live in an incredibly difficult time. Uh, I don't know of any, t- any, any time in my lifetime, perhaps in the last century, that we've experienced what we're experiencing right now. You know, since February of this year, more people have died to COVID than of all the people who died in World War II in combat. I want you to think about that for a moment. We have lost more people in about 10 months than we did in four years of war. And it just sometimes, I think, we need to step back and just realize how many people are passing away. I'm reminded of a Twitter that Dolly Parting put out yesterday. Uh, Charlie Pride, a very famous country music uh, artist, passed away from complications to COVID a couple of days ago. And Dolly, in responding to that, said, this is a terrible, terrible virus, and how true that is. And yet tomorrow, tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of vaccines will start rolling out all across our country. And I know when you hear hundreds of thousands, you're like, but less, there's 300 million Americans. Where does that put me on the list? I hope somewhere behind me, I'll be honest with you. I've told everybody, I want to be at the front of the, of the list. And I know I won't be at the very front, but, you know, before long, I think we'll see this finally starting to turn around. And so, yes, it's an incredibly discouraging time and an incredibly optimistic time at the same time. And so please keep praying for our country, for our state, for our city, for our church, as many of our members have been battling COVID. And it's just affected so many of us in so many different ways. Now, we are winding or coming near the end of our series for this year called His Story. Back in January, we began looking at 52 verses that I said framed the life of Jesus. They don't tell the life of Jesus. You can't do that in 52 verses. But I described it like a giant jigsaw puzzle. If you've ever put large jigsaw puzzles together, you know that you always begin with the edges. Those edges are smooth. You know that they're edges. And so you first frame the jigsaw puzzle, and then you begin to fill in all that's in the middle of it. And that's what I've tried to do this year as we've looked at these 52 verses that I think that tell the story of Jesus, which, by the way, as you can see in the print, is also our story. His story is my story. His story is your story. And let me say a big thank you to Stan Wilson and John Micah Richardson. They did awesome jobs the last two weeks. They are co-workers here uh, of several of us at the Hendersonville Church of Christ. And I love these two brothers. I mean, they take seriously the Word of God, they work hard on their lessons, and they do awesome jobs, and I love being able to share the pulpit from time to time with these guys. And they really set us up for today's lesson. Stan mentioned two weeks ago that we're in a season of the year that many in the world call Advent. John Michael last week mentioned the same thing, and I'll say more about that in just a second. You know, one of our verses that we memorized back in the summertime, I think it was maybe around July the 19th, if I remember correctly, was John 3.16. A verse that all of us learned probably when we were little tykes. I know I did. 
I don't remember who taught it to me. I don't know if it was my mother. I don't know if it was my Sunday school teacher. But someone, when I was a little bitty fella, taught me John 3.16. How much God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only. I remembered it as his only begotten. So that all of those who believe in him, they won't perish. They'll have everlasting life. And at the very heart of that theme, or that verse, is this word called salvation. Now, I bring that up because in so many ways, when we think of this concept of advent, that word advent is simply a Latin word which means to come, coming, arrival. And it was the way that Christians back in the Middle Ages talked about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They called it his advent. But John Micah said something last week that caught my ear. Uh, I don't know about you, but most of the time when people present sermons or lessons, I try to learn maybe one good lesson from them. I mean, I have to tell you that I have preached many lessons. I probably remember very few of them. But oftentimes there's one phrase or one statement that stands out. And John Micah's last week, as he was preaching, said, you know, when you come to Scripture, you find that in Scripture there are actually three of these comings, three advents mentioned in Scripture. Now, most of us don't pause to think about that. But boy, when he said that, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, wow, John, thank you because I'd been trying to figure out how was I going to present today's lesson, and when he said that, it just fell into place. Now, the first advent is the one that the world is Paul's doing right now. As Mike mentioned, I, too, love Christmas. Uh, I, I love everything about it. This morning, on my front uh, porch was a package. And so I called June as I was driving out the driveway, and I said, June, there's a package on the front porch. And June, in a few seconds later, texted back and said, it's a fruitcake. Now, some of y'all are going, oh, no, not a fruitcake. Yes, a fruitcake. I love fruitcakes. My mother used to make fruitcakes, and I remember sitting around the kitchen table at Christmas time, eating all of that candied fruit. I, to this day, love fruitcakes. Now, please, don't all of y'all go and send me fruitcakes, okay? I don't want that many of them. But I love fruitcakes. I love, the, as Mike said, the sounds, the smells. I mean, the songs. I mean, I just love all of it. And so the first Advent is what the world is pausing, doing right now as they celebrate the birth of Jesus. And what's fascinating is, is that if you begin to read the gospel accounts, you have two of them. You have Matthew and you have Luke. Remember, the first of the gospels written very likely was Mark. And Mark, I believe, and, and the church, early church father said this, is that Mark was writing down Peter's memories, his memoirs, if you would. And so what it looks like in Scripture is that both Matthew and Luke took Mark, used it as the core of their Gospels, and simply expanded it. That's, when, when you, that's, that's the reason when you read Matthew and then you read Mark, you think, Am I not reading the same thing I read in Matthew? You are. 97% of Mark's gospel is found in Matthew's gospel. But what Matthew and Luke did was is that they expanded Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't have anything about the birth of Jesus. 
He starts with John the Baptist, and Jesus is already a grown adult when he appears in Mark's gospel. But in Matthew and Luke, they tell the story of Jesus coming into the world. Matthew for Jewish Christians, Luke for Gentile Christians. Appropriate enough, isn't it? Now, what's fascinating is that the themes found in both of those gospels are the same theme. Notice, for instance, in Matthew. This is Matthew 1, 20 and 21. I put it in the Tree of Life version, which is a Jewish messianic translation. It keeps a lot of the Arabic, or, excuse me, Aramaic and Hebrew words in it. But notice how it's translated. But while he was considering these things, you see, Joseph was living there in Nazareth. Mary, his fiancée, had gone down to Judah to visit a cousin. Luke tells us that part of the story. She comes back, and Matthew notices that she's pregnant. And, of course, he knows he's not the father. And so Joseph begins to consider, how am I going to divorce Mary? I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to put her to public shame. And so he's trying to figure out how to do this quietly. And so Joseph, while he's considering these things, Matthew tells us, has an angel appeared to him. Behold, an angel of Adonai, the Old Testament word for Lord, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam. We call her Mary, but her Hebrew name was Miriam, the same name as the sister of both Moses and Aaron. Do not be afraid to take her as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Ruach HaKodesh. It's from the Holy Spirit of God. She'll give birth to a son, and you are, are to call his name Yeshua. We say Jesus. I mean, I, I love that song, at the name of Jesus. You see, the name of Jesus was so important that God told the angels, here's the name I want to give my son. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. You turn over to Luke's gospel. The angel Gabriel tells Mary the exact same thing. You are to call him Jesus, Yeshua. And what makes that name so important, Jesus or Yeshua, is that it's a compound name in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, oftentimes they name people that way. They would take a couple of different names and they would put them together. And if you'll notice the yeah in the front, Y-E, that's a shortened form of the name of God, Yahweh. And then you see the name Shua. And Shua is simply Hebrew for salvation. And so what it means literally is Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. I mean, here's God naming his son after himself, but not just after himself, but after a quality of God, which is that he's willing to love us so much that he saves us. And so that's the name Jesus was given. You get over in the book of Acts, and it's fascinating that when the apostles began to preach, they so emphasized that, that the Sanhedrin became upset. The Jewish council called John and Peter in and said, listen, don't preach anymore in that name. Boy, look at what Peter says. Jesus. You don't want us to mention Jesus? Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in none, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And then the text that is based on the song we just sang. I mean, that song is taken from this verse. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him me. A name that is above every name. George, that's a good name. Not as good as that one. You know, Chad, good name. Not quite good enough. Les, uh, it's not even a good name. But hey, you know, it's the name I got. But here's a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, that's why I love that song we just sang, Every knee should bow. Every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You go on in in these early accounts. It's not just his name, but so many other references to salvation are are just scattered through these birth narratives. Here in Luke chapter 1, you have... uh, Zachariah. Zachariah is the father of John the Baptist. And, and you, if you remember the story, he was serving in the temple. An angel appears to him right in the middle of the temple, just the two of them inside burning incense. And the angel tells him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, in their old age is going to have a son. And they're to name him John. And he's going to be the forerunner of God's Messiah. Of course, Zechariah, he and Elizabeth have been trying to have children for, for years and years and years, couldn't have children. He said, how, how can I be sure this is going to happen? And the angel said, I tell you what, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. For nine months. Now, he didn't tell him nine months, but he said, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be able to talk. And, and so sure enough, the entire pregnancy, I mean, can you imagine Elizabeth coming in and saying to Zachariah, Zachariah, you, 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 you're not going to believe this. I'm expecting. And then she looks at him and says, say something. <laughs> he can't say anything. God made sure of it. And, of course, John is finally born, and they're going to name him after Zachariah. The family is. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And they turned to Zechariah and said, John? And he takes and he writes out on a tablet, his name is John, and his tongue is all at once turned loose. And this is what he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come to his people and redeemed them. There's that word. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Notice again that theme of salvation. You turn over to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Another reason we sang that one this morning. The angels, as they appeared outside of Bethlehem to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Perhaps one of my favorite is found in Luke chapter 2. When Mary and, and, uh, and Joseph go up to the temple to dedicate Jesus, Jesus was a firstborn. All firstborn kids, sons, had to be redeemed because they belonged to the Lord. And, and so they went up and they redeemed Jesus with a couple of either pigeons or doves. And while they're there in the temple making that redemption, purifying Mary and celebrating the birth of Jesus, an old prophet by the name of Simeon came up. And Simeon had been given a promise You're not going to die until you see the Lord's Messiah. 
And he looks up and he sees Joseph and Mary walking in, very likely with Mary carrying the baby Jesus. And when he does, he realizes this is the one. And watch what he says to God as he takes this baby up in his arms. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss, dismiss your servant in peace. We don't know how old he is, but he's old. And then he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So when we think about the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, it's all about God saving the world, John 3, 16. But one of the things that we sometimes miss when we come to John 3, 16 is verse 17. Verse 17 opens up a theme that it's not about the first advent, but it is about something in the future. Notice verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world. A lot of translations will translate that condemn. The NIV does that. The word there is not condemn. It's crino. It means to judge. You've got other ways of saying to condemn. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And the reason I say that is because as you go on through John's gospel, it becomes evident that, yes, the first advent is not about judgment. It's about salvation. But that's not the case in the second one. Notice Jesus later on. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. In fact, he goes on. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The very thing John 3, 16 and 17 says. But you don't need to stop. Read the rest of the verse. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn him at the last day. In other words, I didn't come to judge, but judgment day is coming, Jesus says. And that's what the second coming, or what we sometimes call the second advent, is all about. This is our text for this week. And, and of course you think, boy, not an appropriate text for the Christmas season. It is if you want to put the Christmas season in proper perspective. Here... Paul writes, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You see, the problem with a lot of us is we like that one. That advent is good. The second one's a little bit more challenging. Maybe not for us. You know, Paul, if you go back to 2 Corinthians... He'll talk about what's coming in the future. And notice one of the things he says, Therefore we are always confident. I love the way he uses that word. He's going to use it twice in the text. And know that as long as we are at home in the body and we are away from the Lord, we live by faith, not by sight. Paul says, listen, right now, as long as we're here, we're not in the presence of Jesus. And so the only way we can see him is by faith. And that's true today. I mean, I, I know all of us would love to see Jesus. And if we stay faithful to him, we will see him in all of his glory. But right now we see by faith. But Paul goes on. He says, we're confident. Boy, this one I would have to kind of put a question mark behind. He says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. How many of us could say that? I'd rather right now be 
away from the body and be present with Jesus. As I tell people all the time, when Paul said, you know, I, I'm caught between two. I have the desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. And you know, in one sense, I know up here, I believe that up here. But in another sense, down here, June's saying, you better not leave me right now. And, and so that confidence is not as confident with me. You know, Paul had had a vision of Jesus in heaven. I mean, he had seen what glory was like. He couldn't even write about it, he said. And so Paul's confidence was, in fact, tremendous. And so he says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or, or away from it. But we need to remember the day is coming when we have to appear before Jesus. And I want you to notice what verse 11 says. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. You know, you look at that word confident, and then you look at that word fear, and you think, Paul, those don't go well together. And yet in many ways they do. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I loved my dad. I had a wonderful father. But I have to also tell you that I was fearful of my dad. My dad knew how to discipline. My dad had a fond way of saying, do I need to tell you that a second time? And of course, when he asks you that question, you better not say, yes, you do, because uh, you would know what fear is. You see, I was confident my dad was going to do what was right. And I loved him because of it. I didn't enjoy the discipline, but I loved my father. In so many ways, that's the image that Paul is painting here. And so, so many people celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus, but they live in dread of the judging Jesus. You know, all through the Old uh, New Testament, you, you, you're reminded Jesus is going to one day judge the world. This is on Mars Hill. And at the end of urging people to repent, in verse 31, Paul says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. And the point being simply is that God, one of these days, is going to put everything right. And he goes on in the next phrase and says, By the man he's appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Daniel 12, 2 talks about this coming judgment occurring when the dead are raised. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And he says there's two things that are going to result from that being raised up again. One is some are going to be raised to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. And that's one of the things we have to realize is the reason judgment must be taken so seriously is because no matter where we are in life, if we turn our back on Jesus, whether never accepting Him or having accepted Him, at some point turn our back to Him, it's not good. The Hebrew writer, and Mike quoted from Hebrews today, says, We know him who says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. And so he says, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then even more concerning is the next verse in this text, where he says, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished, who's trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Here's the Hebrew writer saying there are people who accept Jesus, but then after accepting him, they, they literally, it's as if they walk on him. They trample him under their feet. 
That juice that we drank a few moments ago, they treat what it represents, the blood of Jesus, as some kind of unholy thing. And they insult the Holy Spirit who comes to work in our lives and to give us grace. So he warns us here. And yet on the other side is that beautiful image of, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to handle these small amounts, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. What a beautiful message. The first advent, he comes to save us. The second advent is he comes to judge us. It's the third one that decides which one we'll like better. Jesus replied, if anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them and we will come. There's the third coming. When we invite Jesus and his Father to come and live with us. And here's Jesus saying, when you accept that advent, when you accept that coming, is when we come and make our home with you. And I love the way that that Mary is told in John chapter 20 after she had seen Jesus and grabbed hold of him and Jesus said, do not hold on to me. I've got to ascend back to the Father. But then she says to Mary, you go and tell, and notice the language here, go instead to my brothers. A new relationship. Jesus is our older brother. And tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father my God and your God. And that's what makes Advent so special. And so all of us have to basically ask ourselves a very simple question. What are we going to do about the first Advent? Because it'll determine what we do about the second Advent. And so you're always invited. If you need to accept Jesus Christ, we're here to help you you need to put your faith in him and be baptized, just let us know how we can do that, and we'd be honored to help you do that. God bless you this week. Let's pray, and then George will come and lead us in one more song. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the promise to send him again. But most of all, Father, thank you for the reality that for so many of us, you've come to live with us along with him and to make your home with us. And for that we say thank you because that's what gives us confidence that Paul talked about. And we long that day, Father, to come when we can live with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.